Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Saints. How are you guys doing today? It's a pleasure to be with you guys. If you can, go ahead, turn your Bibles to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. And I do want to thank your elders. Thank you for calling for this opportunity to be able to preach with you. Um, if you guys do not know, I am from City Bible Church in Sacramento, and my wife, Melinda, is with me today. So it is a pleasure to be with you today. Um, let me go ahead and turn to Psalm 15, and let me go ahead and do the reading of God's Word. Psalm 15 reads, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Psalm 15 reads, O Yahweh, or in your Bibles would say, O Lord, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we recognize, Lord, that you are holy. And there is none like you. You are perfectly moral. And God, we also confess and acknowledge, Lord, that we fall short of your holiness. Yet you give us precepts and commands, a, a standard to live up to, Lord. And so often we fall short. And we are so thankful because of Jesus who makes a way. We thank you that he has met the standard that he lived a perfect life that we could never live in order for us to have life in him. Because of this fact, I pray that we would be encouraged. Yet because of this fact, I pray that we would also, with all the energy that you supply, strive to live out to the standard you have called us to, Lord. And God, I pray that you would bless this time, bless the meditations of my heart, Lord, but Lord, I pray for power and unction that your word would have an effect, that you alone would get glory. God, we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're in Psalm 15, and now, I'll, now I have entitled this, Striving for the Holy. You know, we're all familiar with traveling and going to a destination, and we're familiar with any destination we go, it's going to be a cost. For instance, I'm from Sacramento, and we're in Stockton right now, and it costs me money to get here. Nevertheless, I'm here. <laughs> the idea is that we understand that there is a cost to get to a particular place. Now, today, we're talking about journeying and dwelling in the presence of God. We must all understand that we're all sojourners. That is, we are here in these bodies for a limited time, passing on to another place 
for eternity. For some, eternity with God forever, heaven. And for others, eternal damnation. I believe when you think of yourselves as sojourners, it connotes the idea of a life here on earth as temporary. Even more specifically, it is to dwell here as an alien or a foreigner, knowing that this is not your final destination. No, as Christians, we have so much more to look forward to. Imagine, if you will, a life unhindered by the limitations of humanity, a life unhindered by sin, and a life seeing the glory of God face to face. That's the aim, that's the goal, and that's our final destination, namely to be in the presence of God forever. You see, now in this text, the psalmist encourages us to ask one of the most important questions that we can ever ask. Who is able to enter and remain in the presence of God so that we may know the righteous requirement and examine our hearts in light of this truth? You see, the Bible says that in God is life. For instance, in Psalm 36, verse 9, it says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. You see, God created life. He sustains life, and he grants eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ. And to have life in Christ gives us the ability to live life to the fullest. Yes, there is a cost. There is a requirement in order to enter just as you cannot go to Costco and partake of the free samples and food being given out, or buy bulk food for reasonable prices, or get cheaper gas for that matter, without a membership, you cannot enter and remain in the presence of God without a cost. You have to be a member. And to be a member is to meet the proper payment. In the case of God's presence, it is holiness. That is the cost, holiness. Again, in this text, the psalmist encourages us to ask one of the most important questions. Again, look at verse 1 of Psalm 15. And he says, O Lord, or my Bible says, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent. And so this is my first point. What I want you to see in verse 1 is the holy destination. The holy destination. Now, I want to point out right here, O Lord, or O Yahweh, he is addressing the covenant-keeping God. When we say the word Yahweh, we should be reminded of the covenant that God had made with Jacob, the covenant that he made with Abraham. And it was unconditional, was based on the goodness of God and the covenant that was going to be fulfilled through the Mosaic law, this, this covenant that was given to a particular group of people. And so when he says Yahweh, he is addressing this covenant-keeping God. In other words, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the consistency of God with his people. And David addresses God, O Yahweh. This is the same God who gave the children of Israel his statutes of ways to walk abruptly. The psalmist David asks the right being for only he, that is God, can give the truthful answer. And what you'll also acknowledge here in verse 1 is that David is the one who was asking this question. You must note that this is not some pagan king or, or pagan people asking this question. This is the king of Israel who was chosen by God as it was revealed to Samuel. 
This is the king from the tribe of Judah who was given a promise that through Jacob that the scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah. This is the same king who was given a promise as God made a covenant with David, promising that he would not lie to David. In short, David is a believer in the one and only God. David is within the community of faith who was asking this question. Again, he is inquiring of this covenant-keeping God. Church, are you an inquirer today? Are you seeking the one who is faithful, who keeps the covenant? Because this is what David is doing here. Now let me highlight a couple other words here. He says, who may sojourn or dwell? In some of your Bibles it might say abide, The word abide here is literally sojourn, and it is taking a pilgrimage or going on a journey to a particular place. Some commentaries suggest that this psalm refers to a homecoming of sorts. It's as if a person is on a journey through through life that ends up in that final destination. This means that David may be asking, who may come near to your tent? Now, when he says dwell here, again, look at verse 1. To dwell is to live or to remain. In other words, Yahweh, who may come to you and who may remain, who may abide, who may live, who may stay in your presence. This is the tent of Yahweh. Now, when he speaks about the holy hill right here, or the holy mountain, this hill This holy hill refers to Zion or Jerusalem. This is the place where God was said to be among his people. This was on the mountain. This conjures thoughts of priests bringing sacrifices as prescribed in the law of God. This place is sacred. It is holy. To be holy is to be separate and distinct. God is said to be holy. He is other and not like his creation. God is not in any category. No, he is something other. Therefore, the psalmist asks, who is able to abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who is holy? Or excuse me, who is worthy to come into your presence? You see, when you think of tent or holy hill, your mind should go to the wilderness wanderings and the tent that was to be erected by the Levites. It is said that Moses would enter the presence of God and his face shone with the glory of God, thus causing all the children of Israel to fear his presence. You see, a veil was needed to cover the face of Moses in order to communicate with Israel because of the glory. You see, my wife and I, we have this rule. If anyone comes to our house, they have to take off their shoes. Now, you might ask, why do we want them to take off their shoes? Because we don't want them to track any dirt in our house. Similarly, God is holy. He doesn't want anything that's unclean to come into his presence. If anything is unclean or dirty, it must remain away. Same idea with God. God is holy. But also, let me give you another illustration. We think about the holiness of God. Let's turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And we can get a picture of the holiness of God. Exodus 19. I'm going to look at verses 18 through 23. And it reads, 
Now this is where the children of Israel, they're traveling from Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai. And this is where Moses eventually is going to receive the Ten Commandments and the law for how the children of Israel, how they were to live um, their lives before the holy and the just God. And it says in verse 18, now Mount Sinai was, in all, was, in, was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then Yahweh, or the Lord, spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to see, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to Yahweh set themselves apart as holy, lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and set it apart as holy. Then Yahweh said to him, Go down, come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, God is holy, and this is evident in the fact that the people were not to come up to him, otherwise they would perish because they could not gaze upon his glory and his holiness. You see, the priests were to consecrate themselves or else they would perish because Yahweh's holiness and glory. God is holy. But then let's look at, look at Exodus chapter 20 again. And let me read verses 18 through 20. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourselves and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you, that you may not sin. So even in this holiness of God, when we think about the holiness of God, there should be a a necessary godly fear in us. Why? So that we would not sin. That we would not treat God like we would treat something that we do not respect or care for. God is something completely other. He is holy. You see, the people recognize the holiness, holiness of God as they perceive the thunder, the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet and the smoky mountain. And they, in response, feared the glory of God. Again, hear the words of the psalmist, O Yahweh, who is able to enter into your presence? You see, oil does not mix with water. Unholiness does not mix with holiness. We have to be a holy people in order to go to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. We have to be in relationship with him. And there are many others who have acknowledged the holiness of God. Let me give you a few examples. Moses, when they cross the Red Sea, They sing, who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Hannah, 
when she prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, No one is holy like Yahweh, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. We think about the angels when they cry in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and one, an, this angel would cry to another angel, and he would cry out, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then you might want to ask, well, if God is so holy, why do I want to come to the presence of God? Because God is the fountain of life. You cannot live apart from the grace of God. You cannot have eternal significance apart from the grace of God. God grants life not only physically but eternally. If you have emotional trauma, God can see you through it. Why do we want to go to the holy presence of God? Because you were created to reflect God's glory. You were meant to reflect him. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were commanded to rule and subdue the earth and multiply, but they sinned, allowing sin and death to come into the world. Thus, you and I experience physical death. Even more, apart from Christ, you will experience eternal death. That is, separation from God forever. So yes, we desire his presence because Yahweh, or the Lord, is the fountain of life, and we want to reflect his glory. Again, you might ask, why do we want to go into the presence of God? Because of the brevity of life. Life is short. You should desire God's holy destination because life is short. Let's face it. Many of you here may have lived over half of your life. Now, I know we don't like to talk about those things, but it's true. You can agree with Solomon when he spoke of life, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What he is saying here, that life is like a vapor. It comes and goes. I'm close to 50 years old right now, and I don't know what happened to the past 30 years, but I'm here today. And I think many of you can testify. Why do we want to be in the presence of God? Because life is short. But also we want the presence of God because it's going to help you prioritize things in your life. It's going to help you prioritize things in your life. Life can be filled with a bunch of stuff that has no eternal value. Thinking about the holiness of God's presence, his magnificence and splendor should cause us to fall on our knees and complete all of him. In light of eternity, in light of the holy destination of God should cause self-examination in how we spend our time. We would then agree with the Apostle Paul, make the most use of our time. Why do we want God's holy presence? Because of the shortness of life, it helps to prioritize. But not only that, when we see people who do not know the Lord, just as one of your elders is here praying for a planned uh, parenthood and those who do not know Christ, it should give us a greater motivation to tell others about, hey, there's an eternity to spend. Where are you going? Let me tell you about Jesus who offers eternal life through his death and his burial and his resurrection. It helps to motivate you to tell others about Christ. And we are to tell them that God is holy. He is holy. And there's a destination that is in front of you. Where are you going? So when a psalmist asks who was able to stand in your tent and who was able to stand on your holy hill, he is essentially asking, who is worthy to stand before you, God? This is the destination that all men must desire because God is the fountain of life. 
In God alone you will find life and have life. This is the holy destination that we must all strive for. But then there's the cost. So we have point number one, we have the holy destination, but now the cost, the holy demand. That's the second point, the holy demand. Look at verse 2. And in verses 2 through 5, we see several characteristics. I've counted 11 characteristics. Some have seen 10. Some commentaries suggest that the 10 characteristics are similar to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Uh, This displays what is required of man to enter into the presence of God. We start with the first three characteristics, that is, that which explains what a person is to do. They're positive characteristics. These are the things that you are to do. Look at verse 2 with me. And he says, He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Now, when you look at verse 2, I want you to identify those three verbs. Walk, work, speak. These three verbs are participles. Now, this is significant because this characterizes a person rather than what a person has done one time. I joke with my wife. I tell her, you know, if, we, if I want to remind her of how good I've been, I say, remember that one year, that one time I did that one th- good thing for you? I bought you flowers, I bought you chocolate, and I'm good, right? It's like, no. What have you done for me lately? See, if I've done one good deed in my life, that does not make me a romantic, does it? It doesn't. Similarly, when we do one act of obedience, it does not make us obedient to Christ. We should be characterized by this. So when we look at these three words, walk or work and speak, this is something that characterizes someone. This is part of their nature. It just flows out of them, in other words. Now, this person, it says that he is to walk blamelessly. Some of your translation says walk in integrity. This means to walk without fault. This same noun is used as sacrificial animals as not having a blemish. If we were to look at some of the sacrifices in um, Exodus and Leviticus, the same word for blame is um, used for those sacrifices and how they were to be offered before God. They could not have a blemish. These sacrifices were to be sacrificed without a blemish or they were unacceptable by God. Even more, Noah was said to be a blameless and righteous man in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. Thus he walked with God. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, Abraham was commanded by God to walk before him and be blameless. It's the same word. God commands us to walk in a way that is blameless before others. You know, again, we've noted that Noah walked with God, Abraham walked with God, and you and I are to walk with God. If we were to look at Galatians chapter 5, it says walk and keep in step with the Spirit. Similar idea, if you were to walk. With God, but you're going to do it in a particular way, namely in a way that is blameless, without blemish before God. And then he uses a second word here, the second verb. He says to work. This man is to work righteousness. He is to do things in accordance to the character of God who is upright in all his ways. Anything less than righteous is not acceptable before him. And then he says, speak. This man also is to speak the truth in his heart. 
This person does not entertain lies or meditate on things that are not true. Remember Jesus, remember Jesus said that worship must be done in spirit and truth. For the Bible says that Yahweh is near to all who call upon him, but all those who call upon him in truth. This person is constantly speaking truth in his heart. So we see those are the first three positive characteristics. Now there are three negative things that we do not do. And he says, look at verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue. Now, the second set of three qualities are negative. That is, men should not only do what is right, but they should have an absence of evil. Now, he says here that a man should not slander with his tongue. If we were to look at Leviticus 19.16, God commands Israel, you should not go about as a talebearer or a slanderer or, should I say, gossiper among your people. Nor should you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. You are not to slander. You're not to undermine the character of other people. But then he says here, not only are you not to slander, you're not to do evil. Again, look at verse 3. He does not do evil to his neighbor. This means that you should not be malicious or seeking the hurt of someone. And then the third thing he says. He says, nor should you take up a reproach against his friend. He must not take up a reproach against his friend. This means he is not going to do anything that brings shame or insult against his friend. One might argue that doing such actions is not actually a friend. (laughs) He's not going to take up a reproach. But then we go on. So now we've talked about six characteristics, but now we're talking about characteristics that are more horizontal. Characteristics that how we relate to one another. Look at verse 4. And he says, the psalmist David, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, to speak of reproach, this means he is not going to do anything that brings shame or insult against his friend. Okay? Now, when we're talking about reprobate, excuse me, there is an attitude or perspective of this man. So his eyes despises a reprobate. A reprobate is someone who is perverted. This is an unprincipled man, unprincipled man a man who does not live a moral life. All right? He is immoral according to God's standards. He is despised to be, he is despised by the godly man. Now, if you were to turn to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, it says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. But those who fear Yahweh, they hate arrogance and the evil way and a perverse mouth. Those are the things that characterize this person who loves the Lord and loves his ways. Anything that contradicts the character and the quality, the morality of God, the godly man, the one who was seeking to go into the presence of God, he despises that kind of lifestyle. But contrary to that, there is... This God-fearer is someone who also who honors those who fear God. And now when we're talking about honoring others, it means to speak well of them, to do well, um, to do good. Um, when you have your elders and they're consistent and they're being consistent in preaching the word and feeding the sheep, you are to honor them. The Bible gives many uh, indications of how we are to honor one another. And the church, especially those who are loving the Lord, we are to honor one another. Blessing one another. 
giving preference to one another. And then he says the last thing. Look at verse 4 again. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, he keeps his oaths. What he says, he's going to do it. And when he says he's going to do something, he's going to be faithful to do it, even if it's going to harm him. And then there are two more characteristics here. Again, look at verse 5. It says he does not put out his money at interest. Again, the idea here at putting money at interest is that you're not going to charge a ridiculous amount of uh, interest on maybe a loan. And Israel, they were commanded that they were not to take advantage of those who were poor or destitute. They were to be freely giving to people. And we could probably spend a lot of time talking about how people would probably take advantage of those who are poor or less fortunate and maybe want to give them a higher interest rate on, say, a car loan or a higher interest rate on certain things. Now, obviously, there's reasons for that, but I think you get the idea. We're not trying to take advantage of someone. We're not trying to get one up on someone. We're always going to be fair in our dealing. But also, he says in verse 5, this person who desires to go to this holy destination is someone who does not take a bribe. Why? Because taking a bribe, it perverts justice. You guys follow me? So, remember, the first point is the holy destination. That's where we're going. The second point is the holy demand. And I just listed out 10 characteristics. So, you guys, you do all of those things and you're good. All right, should I just pray and say, okay, be warm to fill and let's do it? There's more to it because I think obviously we look at this, you say, no, I'm not living up to this. I'm not living up to this. I try, but I'm not living up to this. And so many times, and even as I was reading Romans, one of the problems with Israel is that they tried to perfect the things of God by living up to the righteous standard and they couldn't do it. But the idea of the righteous standard was to point out that you cannot do it. You cannot do it. Some have thought of this particular psalm, especially those characteristics similar to the Decalogue, similar to the Ten Commandments. And some have seen this as something as a checkoff list. You kind of like tick it off one thing at a time. A commentary, let me read it. He says the the tenfold structure, speaking of verses 2 through 5, suggests one, once again the didactic t- context of the wisdom school. Young persons were being instructed to tick off, as it were, on their ten fingers the moral conditions prerequisite to participation in worship. Simply, in order to participate in worship, they were instructed to maintain the moral integrity prescribed here. If they did not meet the requirements, they were not allowed to participate in public worship. This, then, was something they strove for or tried to do on their own. In other words, this became a spiritual checklist. When I was in seminary, I would always look at my syllabus at the beginning of the semester. And I would say, okay, what is the requirement for me to pass this class? How many pages do I need to read? How many um, papers do I need to write? And week by week, I would cross out or strike through every assignment. And by the time... The semester came to an end. Everything is done, and I'm waiting for my grade, for my A. Same idea here. 
you have many people who want to have a relationship with God, and so they take all of the commands and they say, okay, let me try to do these things, but they're trying to do it all on their own. If I do these standards on my own, then I'm going to be perfectly righteous before God. This is also similar to the rich young ruler, and I'm sure that many of you have heard about the rich young ruler. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to read through 31, and I'm going to point out a few things here. Mark chapter 10, and I'm starting at verse 17. Verse 17. And as he, speaking of Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who had owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I just want to point out something here. Look at verse 17. And what does this young rich ruler ask Jesus? Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to go to that holy destination? What must I do to be in the presence of God? This is essentially it's the same question that we see in Psalm 15. Who is able to enter? And look at what Jesus says to him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except one. Who? God. You see the correlation here? And then Jesus gives him several commands. It says, do these things and you will have eternal life. And the man says, I've done all these things from my youth up. He wasn't able to recognize his own shortcomings. He thought that he was able to fulfill those things on his own 
bear by pulling himself by pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. He was self-righteous, in other words. Obviously, there's more in the text, and I don't have time to unpack it, but I just want to highlight that, no, when we think about the holy commands, or should I say the holy demand of God, we cannot do it in and of ourselves. Then you're going to probably ask, what is the purpose of Psalm 15? What is the purpose of the law, the Ten Commandments? What is the purpose of the 613 commands that were given to Israel in the Old Testament? What are they for? And they were to instruct us. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. He says, this is Paul the Apostle in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor unto Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. When we think about the law and the instructions and the commands, the demands of God, they were to instruct us. One, it spoke about the character of God, the essence of God, his moral perfection. They are to point out or teach, yeah, this is the way to live. But they're also to teach you that there are many areas in my life that I've fallen short. And because I have fallen short, what must I do? And the law, it basically becomes a mirror to say you're guilty. You're guilty. Just as we were talking about the godly man who doesn't slander. Think about it. I know most of you in here work. How many times have you been in conversations at work and there's slander about the boss <laughs> and you're there you may not necessarily say it but yeah you still kind of want to hear that juicy gossip and you nod your head guilty even more when we think about Jesus when he says that our sin is so much more than just the outward things that we do <laughs> for instance when he talks about anger it's, it's just as bad as murdering, he says. If you look at a woman with unjust or with lustful eyes, it's as if you've already committed adultery. So he brings it up to a whole other level as far as sin. He's talking about the inner man. And this is exactly what the law does. It points out, says, no, I'm not holy. I'm not living up to the standard that God has called us to. This goes beyond a pretentious worship. It's beyond Simple, just conforming my life to live a certain way. For instance, if we were to look at Matthew chapter 6, we are not to do our good works before men. Why? Because it's not because I want to receive the applause of men. So it has to be rightly motivated. When we pray, we are not to pray for the sake of other people being able to applaud us and say, oh, he's so holy. Or when we fast, for instance, that, hey, let me disfigure my face and let me look really disheveled so that way people can say, oh, man, he's so holy. That's your reward, Jesus says. We are to be properly motivated. So when we see the law, when we see these commands, this holy demand of God, it doesn't mean that we work harder. It doesn't mean that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. If this is the case, you would be nothing more than a Pharisee. Yet, you also don't want to dismiss the law because the Bible says that it is holy and it is good, according to Romans chapter 7, verse 12. 
You see, that would be antinomianism, meaning that we are to live without law. It doesn't mean that you can just go out and just live any way you want to live either. Well, God is good, so therefore, by his grace, I'm saved, and I can just live any way I want to live. No. (laughs) Rather, we are to look to Christ because he is the only one who perfectly obeyed the holy demand given in Psalm 15. He is the only one who lived a perfect life. We remember that because of faith, we are in Christ. He, Jesus, accomplished it. Moreover, we must remember that the love that Christ has for us, just as the Apostle Paul said, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, this is not our love for Christ, but rather this is the love of Christ's love for us and how we respond to him. You have to understand that when we still look at this um, Psalm 15, when we look at the uh, commands that are demands of God, we're still responsible. We're still responsible. First John chapter 2, verse 3 through 4 says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So yet there's still a standard that we are to live by. But again, this is not something that we strive by our own energy or power. Rather, we depend on Christ. Paul said something similar in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. But Paul also recognized, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, I labor more abundantly than all the other apostles, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God working through me. If we were to look at Philippians chapter 2, Verses 12 through 13, he says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is the grace of God, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, God working in and through us to do the very things that God is asking of us. It's not us trying harder. We are to strive for the holy destination. Now, I intentionally use the word strive. However, I do not mean striving by mere self-will. I do not mean striving by the power of man. I do not mean working harder by the resources of my own strength. No, because we cannot do it. I mean striving by the energy that Christ supplies. You see, a car cannot go without fuel. Neither can we go and do the things of God without the fuel of Christ. You see, a light bulb or a light cannot be a light to a room because it needs electricity. Similar, we cannot be the light to the world unless we are filled with the light of life, Jesus himself in us. But then you still might be asking this question, well, how do I do it? I know there's a standard, and I feel like I'm always falling short. What is the key? The key is that you have to gaze at Jesus. You have to look to Jesus. The more that I behold him, I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. This is what many of us call sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, it says, Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with the unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Saints, you are to gaze at Christ. Well, how do I gaze at Christ? Be in the word. Let the word of God fill you. And don't just put your Bible down and walk away. No, saturate your mind and your thoughts with scripture. Pray God's word back to him. Let him fill you to such a degree that you think the thoughts of Christ. That's how you gaze at him. And because you have been um, 
Because you're a believer, because you have been regenerated, you have a heart to behold him. But yes, it does still take effort. It still takes the energy that Christ supplies to continue to behold him. How do I do it? Not only that, through prayer, by coming to church, by being in community with one another, encouraging one another with the word, praying for one another, confessing your sin to others, so that way they're able to pray and come alongside you. That's how we continually gaze at Christ. If you're a Christian, you must understand that you and I are striving for the Holy But again, the striving that I'm talking about is not grounded in the strength of man's arms or legs. This is not a striving by a simple, let me try harder or do better. No, we are striving by means of grace. That is, we are striving by the energy which Christ supplies. Let me close reading Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to, if you want to follow with me, verses 18 through 24. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. And it reads, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which is such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they cannot bear what was being commanded. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was what appeared that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, the holy hill, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the festal gathering an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than that blood of Abel. Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you, Lord, for this time. And Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, and we know our destination. It is a holy place to be with you. And God, we do know the holy demand that was commanded. But we thank you so much for Christ because he fulfilled it all. He did it all. And because we are in him, God, we have already, as Romans says, been glorified. Father, I pray help us to live it out today. Lord, I pray for those who may be in sin, who are wanting or desiring to walk in life and more in step with you. I just pray that you would strengthen them, Lord. God, I pray for this community that will be a community to love and to um, speak of Christ, to make much of Christ, and God, that you would bless them. Lord, thank you again for this time, and may you continue to get all glory. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.